Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Any Person, Every Nation, Even the Gentiles, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 6th, 2007. When radio shock jock Don Imus disparaged the women of the Rutgers basketball team as nappy-headed hoes, and Ann Coulter attacked John Edwards as a faggot, their defenders appealed to their rights of free speech. Fair enough. But too much violence today has its roots in hate speech like theirs that appeals to identity caricature. The same could be said for political rhetoric, like Ayatollah Khomeini's reference to America as the great Satan, or Bush's categorization of Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as an axis of evil. Ditto for the vulgarity and misogyny of gangster rap lyrics. What some people call elimination rhetoric poisons our public discourse. It partitions people and civilizations into binary oppositions. Common sense tells us that people enjoy plural identities, or what the Nobel laureate Armartya Sen has called diverse diversities. To understand someone, we must consider factors of civilization, religion, nationality, class, community, culture, gender, profession, language, politics, morals, family of origin, skin color, and a multitude of other influences. Contrary to Samuel Huntington's thesis about the clash of civilizations, we should resist the insinuation that we are fated to hate. Christian anti-Semitism is far too common today but the reading this week from Acts chapter 10 and 11 shows how roles were reversed in the early Christian movement. The question back then was not the marginalization of Jews, but whether and how Gentiles might experience God's grace along with, quote, Israel, the people close to God's heart, Psalm 148, verse 11. Even when open-minded Jew, Jewish followers of Jesus agreed that Gentiles could enjoy God's favor, some of the more zealous ones wanted to require new Gentile believers to obey the law of Moses. This pressure to Judaize the Gentile believers was so strong that even after learning his lesson in this week's story about the Roman centurion Cornelius, Peter lapsed into hypocrisy and so Paul publicly rebuked him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 12. When God instructed Peter in a vision to eat impure and unclean foods, his first impulse as a conscientious Jew was, Surely not I, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Acts 10, 14. After he obeyed God to meet and eat with the Gentile soldier Cornelius and observe the same grace of God in a person so otherwise different from himself, 
the Jewish believers criticized Peter. We read in Acts chapter 11, verse 3, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so Peter had to defend his embrace of the Gentiles. For a Jew of Peter's time and place, dietary restrictions designated what foods you ate and who you ate it with. They comprised only a small part of a comprehensive holiness code that regulated personal and community life for the Hebrew people 3,500 years ago. By one count, there are 613 misvolt or commandments in the five books of Moses. The purity laws of Leviticus chapters 11 to 26 specify in minute detail clean and unclean foods, purity rituals after childbirth or menstrual cycle, regulations for skin infections and contaminated clothing or furniture, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, laws regarding bodily discharges, agricultural guidelines about planting seeds and mating animals, and decrees about lawful sexual relationships, keeping the Sabbath, forsaking idols, and even tattoos. These purity laws encompassed every aspect of being human. Birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, behavior, and certainly ethnicity, for Gentiles were automatically considered impure. Given our propensity for justifying ourselves and for scapegoating others, the purity laws lent themselves to a spiritual stratification or hierarchy between the ritually clean, who considered themselves close to God, and the ritually unclean, who were shunned as impure sinners far from God. Instead of expressing the holiness of God, Ritual purity became a means of excluding people considered dirty, polluted, or contaminated. In word and in deed, Jesus ignored, disregarded, and maybe even actively demolished these distinctions of ritual purity as a measure of spiritual status. And as Peter learned in his encounter with Cornelius, Jesus asked him to do the same. In contrast to the purity system with its sharp social boundaries, the emergent Christian movement substituted a radically alternate social vision. The new community that Jesus announced would be characterized by interior compassion for everyone, not external compliance to a purity code. By radical inclusivity rather than by hierarchical exclusivity, and by inward transformation rather than by outward ritual. In place of be holy, for I am holy, Leviticus 19.2, Jesus deliberately substituted the call to be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, Luke 6.36. God, Peter learned, is not a God of partiality or favoritism. He warmly welcomes every person from any nation. The good news 
that was sent to the people of Israel, said Peter, was that the grace of God was clearly given even to the Gentiles. If the God of all creation did not exclude Cornelius and the Gentiles as impure or unclean, Peter realized that neither could he. In Ephesians, Paul makes a play on words that echoes Peter's thinking. God, says Paul, is the patera of every patria, literally the father from whom every family derives its name. Ephesians 1, 14 and 15. God is not the God of Jews alone or the God only of Christians, and here the translators struggle, but rather the father of all fatherhood, the father of every family, or perhaps the father of the whole human family. He's the God of Muslims, Buddhists, and atheists. And in a curious phrase, Paul even expands God's fatherhood to embrace, quote, every family in heaven and on earth, end quote. Conversely, just as God is every person's father, so every human being is his child. To those who partition people according to ethnicity, economic class, or gender, Paul writes that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Galatians 3.28 To those who limit God's lavish love to the morally pure, Matthew says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5.45 Whether gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, Christian or Wiccan, wealthy entrepreneur whom you envy, or the beggar bum on the street who repulses you, Paul quotes a pagan poet to affirm that every person is God's offspring, Acts 17.28. In his best-selling book, Velvet Elvis, Pastor Rob Bell of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, reminds us that the Christian gospel is good news about God's fatherly favor to every human being and to all of creation. And, as Bell says, quote, especially for those who don't believe it. The church, the church must stop thinking about everybody primarily in categories of in or out, saved or not, believer or non-believer. Besides the fact that these terms are offensive to those who are the un and the non, they work against Jesus' teaching about how we are to treat others. As the book of James says, God shows no favoritism. James 2, 1-13. And so we don't either. I found it a humbling exercise to ask what categories of people I sanctimoniously spurn as impure, unclean, dirty, contaminated, and, in my mind, as far from God. If Peter had his Cornelius, what is my modern equivalent? Maybe Rudy Giuliani and his wife, who between them have been married six times? Or greedy executives? Lazy welfare recipients? 
Republicans who lied us into a catastrophic war, or even Don Imus in Ann Coulter? How have I distorted the self-sacrificing, egalitarian love of God into self-serving, exclusionary elitism? What boundaries do I wrongly build? Or what boundaries might I bravely shatter? And so I pray to follow Peter's obedience and to experience what Marcus Borg calls, quote, a community shaped not by the ethos and politics of purity, but by the ethos and politics of compassion. And now for further reflection. Are there special categories of people that you are tempted to exclude as impure? Number two, is it right to privilege compassion over purity? Or is that an artificial distinction? Number three, can you think of modern equivalents to Peter's encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11? Number four, consider Pastor Bell's remark that the gospel is good news, especially to those who don't believe it. And finally, for further reflection, I recommend the book by the Nobel laureate Armartya Sin, the title, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny. For books this week, I review Michelle Goldberg, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, New York, Norton, 2006, 242 pages. Has America finally had enough of the divisive, fear-mongering politics of the religious right? The drubbing that the Republicans took in the November 2006 midterm elections might suggest so, but it's probably too early to tell. In the meantime, Michelle Goldberg, a self-described secular Jew and urbanite, adds her warning to the growing literature on political evangelicals, about 80% of whom voted for President Bush. Goldberg acknowledges that Christianity and what she calls Christian nationalism are two very different things, and that Christian nationalism by no means represents all evangelicals. She also admits that in her travels from coast to coast, most of the evangelicals whom she met were thoughtful and friendly people. But that's no excuse, she says, for their revisionist history, America as a Christian nation, for their pseudoscience, young earth and intelligent design, for their assault on the judiciary in their simplistic ethics, stem cell, abstinence programs, homosexuality, or for their confusion about church and state in their overall Manichaean worldview that the president himself has articulated to the entire world after 9-11, said Bush, either you're for us or against us. I fully share Goldberg's concerns and her frustrations, 
if not her fear that our political system is about to collapse from the weight of misguided evangelicals. Her book was written before some notable benchmarks that might hint at a decreasing influence of the religious right. The fall of Ted Haggard, the broader outlook of the National Association of Evangelicals that has, for example, shunned the likes of Dobson on environmental concern, White House insider David Quo's book called Tempting Faith that documents just how little genuine interest Republicans have in evangelicals except to exploit their vote. Their vote. Important evangelicals like Jim Wallace, who have been extremely critical of the capitulation of the faith to political ideology, and, let's hope, the common sense of mainstream Americans reflected in the November 2006 elections that defeated candidates like Ralph Reed and Rick Santorum. As with Randall Balmer's missed opportunity in his book called Thy Kingdom Come, I fear Goldberg's hand-wringing and shrill tone will lose some of her audience. And that's a shame, because she's written a good book. It doesn't help, for example, for her to complain that some people have blamed gays for the Nazi Holocaust when she herself repeatedly quotes Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism and compares conservative evangelicals to Germans under Hitler. Still, I was glad that I read her book, even if it depressed me to read about believers sucking up to Caesar. Michelle Goldberg, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. For film this week, I review the controversial Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. As a famous television personality in Kazakhstan, Borat, played by the Jewish Saka Baron Cohen, goes to America to film a documentary about American culture. He lands in New York, falls in love with Pamela Anderson when he sees her on television, and so he and his producer Azamat make a road trip from New York to California in order to meet Pam Anderson. This is the only plot of the film and it's irrelevant to its purpose. Borat has benefited from the truth that there's no such thing as bad publicity. The controversial film will offend just about everyone with its anti-Semitic, racist, misogynist, homophobic, and anti-Christian humor. To me, the problem with the film was not only its vulgarity, which was plenty bad, but that the film simply wasn't funny. And that's a problem for a comedy. Some of Borat was staged, and other parts were real-life ambushes of unsuspecting people. The directors will not say which parts are which. Those who defend Borat argue that it's a clever satire about bigotry. But others argue that it aggravates bigotry. Either way, skip it. Save your time and save your money. Borat, from the year 2006. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a short poem by Algernon Charles Swinburne, 
who lived from 1837 to 1909. The title of the poem is Atlanta in Calydon, from the year 1865. For winter's rains and ruins are over, in all the season of snows and sins, the days dividing lover and lover, the light that loses, the night that wins. In time remembered is grief forgotten, in frosts are slain, in flowers begotten, and in green underwood and cover, blossom by blossom, the spring begins. Atalanta in Calydon, 1865, by Algernon Charles Swinburne. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 6th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.